Hey, everybody. How you doing? And welcome to the John Riley Project. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. How you doing, everybody out there? Uh, this is episode number 232. And we're going to talk a bit today about the um, the case of inflation and all the prices that are increasing in the world around us. We're going to kind of break down some of those cases. We're going to see what's involved, what's really causing some of this inflation, what's the best way to get around it. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about change and accepting change and dealing with change. And already on the live stream, Mike Ryan is here yelling, roar, the heart of the lion, Mike Ryan. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Always love your participation. And thank you again for joining us. Gosh, when was that? Was that last week or was it two weeks ago? We had a great discussion talking about the grocery industry and automated grocery uh, grocery stores. So, um, yeah, I'm just I'm looking forward to today's podcast. You know, I, I didn't get to do my one on Monday. And normally I like to do these every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at two o'clock. But last Monday, you know, my, my fine wife, she's scheduled to have a crew here cleaning all the windows in our house. And I got to tell you, they did a great job. I mean, a lot of these windows, I can't even tell there's a pane of glass there. It's so clean. It's shocking how good of a job they did. Um, but I knew if I was doing my podcast, there was all kinds of chaos around my house and, and definitely in my podcast studio. So we didn't do our episode on Monday, but I'm happy to be here today. And um, and I, I tell you what, uh, we've got a you know busy weekend in store. Last weekend, of course, was Mother's Day, so got our family together with my mom. Um, this uh, the, you know this weekend, we've got family coming in from out of town. Um, some of my wife's cousin and her husband, and and he's a big Cardinals fan, and and they want to see the Padres and Cardinals at Petco, and so we got tickets. And it's not easy buying tickets one off for a game. You got to go through the secondary market buying them from season ticket holders. They're selling them at a premium because there's limited availability. It's like Econ 101, supply and demand. Supply is limited, demand is high. So tickets were expensive. And then we find out just today or yeah, this morning that, well, yesterday, Fernando Tatis put on the injured list because of uh, testing positive for COVID. Then I find out today that Will Myers tested for COVID. He's out. Um, Eric Hosmer got, you know, essentially... Uh, is contact tracing. So I guess he was around people that had COVID. He's on the injured list. So we're going to go to this ball game on Saturday, hoping that our Padres could, could beat the, uh, my wife's cousin's husband. He's a big fan of the Cardinals, but we're going to be with one arm tied behind our back, a triple A team, but we'll still have a fun time this weekend. So looking forward to that. Um, well, yeah, right now the Padres are in a doubleheader. I think they're 1-1 in the first game. So hopefully I can catch the second game after this podcast. Okay, so you know, before we get into inflation and everything, I just want to kind of share a story. And I think one of the things I try to do in this podcast is, you know, we talk about you know, politics and culture and economics and entrepreneurship, and we talk about sports and we talk about cars, but I always like to drive things back to you know, essentially self-improvement. How can we be better? What are the things that we can learn from each other? Experience that we have, what are the things that we can, we could take away from this podcast, some useful nuggets in life. And, you know, I've been going through a situation, you know, just this week, and I think this is a good topic just to kick off the podcast with. And it's just this whole idea that change is hard, 
right? And we, we've talked about this. Mike Ryan and I talked about it as it pertained to Poway Road and the construction on Poway Road and all of the new buildings being created and people are freaking out about all the change on Poway Road because change is hard, right? Change is difficult. Um, and when change is happening to people farther away from you, then it doesn't have as great of an impact. But when change happens to things right in front of your nose, then suddenly, you know, you you can get into a game of mind games, speculation, trying to affect the change and change is hard. And I think that's what a lot of our, our friends and neighbors here in our city of Poway are feeling and experiencing as it relates to the construction on Poway Road. That's what we've all been feeling and experiencing as we've gone through this whole COVID epidemic for the last year, actually a year plus, what are we on? Probably the 14th month of the, you know, of some form of a lockdown. It's been a difficult year, friends, and we've been dealing with change and change is hard. Well, in one of my situations, one of my clients, um, and one of my bigger clients, frankly, is going through a lot of change. And they were, uh, you know, they're one entity that are, is owned by a larger corporation. And then that corporation merged with another corporation, right? And so if you've ever been involved in a corporate merger, that can be really difficult, um, especially if you're in management roles. Um, or in my case, I do a lot of work with, uh, with my partners that, are, that work in the marketing department of these companies. And so- when there is a merger, you know, there is duplicate people that are doing the same job and there are people looking over their shoulder to see if they're going to survive this merger. There's battles for leadership. There is fear, uncertainty, doubt. There is change in management, change in direction, change in vision. So, you know, one of my clients is going through that right now. And it's hard. I mean, you just look around and you see people feeling stress about it. Well, the leader of my com- my client's business unit, he stepped down um, a few weeks ago. It was uh, very disappointing, but it was really the fallout of this merger. Then a second uh, major player for my client, um, a person who I've had a relationship with for over 25 years, he's stepping down um, because of the merger. And, you know, I don't know what happens behind closed doors, but at any rate, change is hard, you know? And so... A lot of the people that I deal with with my my clients' business on a day-to-day basis, they're, you know, rightfully concerned, nervous, trying to understand how to deal with the new reality in front of them. And so I just – I think this is a really interesting topic just to kind of break down a little bit because – What do you do in a situation like this when there's change that's happening right around you in your immediate world? And it may be in your personal life, in your business life, maybe in your community. What are the things you can do? And I'm trying to reflect and and really I'm coming to the conclusion, it's sound advice we've heard from so many other people, is just to focus on yourself rather than trying to worry about everything around you. Just you know, don't ignore the change, find a way to adapt to the change, find a way to have a strategy around the change, but just understand that you can't necessarily affect that change to that great of a, uh, of a, of a degree. So, you know, it's interesting is for my client, we had speculated that this was going to be coming at some point, but it's interesting is that when it actually happens for real and you see important people, good people, people that you have trust in their leadership and their vision 
seeing them step down. Um, once that becomes real, then it kind of affects you differently, doesn't it? Um, and you know, makes you wonder, you know, who's next, right? Uh, in these corporate mergers, it can be difficult. So, um, you know, I, I thought about I thought about one of our previous guests. And, you know, we have Pete Neald on the podcast all the time. His son, Nick Neald, was on the podcast before. And he has a children's book. And it's called Just Be. You know, and just, just be, you know, just exist, live in the moment, live in the present, rather than speculating about the future or having concerns about what happened in the past, just live in the moment. I think that's really good advice when change is happening all around you. It's just to understand the reality of what you're dealing with right now and understand what you can change and what you cannot change. And then really focus on what's in your control. And so it makes me think about this, certainly, um, as now granted, I'm not an employee of, the, of this company. I'm, a, I'm a, essentially a consultant. Um, but it makes me reflect, you know, because this particular client is a significant portion of my business's income. So then I think, you know, what, what's, what could potentially happen? Well, I just know that I need to focus inward, you know, rather than wasting energy speculating and worrying it's best just to focus inward and ask yourself, what can you do to improve yourself? And what's interesting is, is that what I've learned from the leaders that have stepped down in this particular company, they could have stuck, stuck around longer, but they would have maybe not been in the same position. They would have not had as much control. And as a matter of just personal integrity, they decided to go another direction. And I think that was a really good lesson because sometimes we want to change the world around us, but we can't really change other people. So then sometimes we think, well, the only option is just to suck it up and go along with the change. But sometimes you can just opt out. You can say, this isn't for me. This is no longer consistent with my vision, my values. And instead, I can show integrity. I can demonstrate integrity and stand up for what I believe is right and use that as an opportunity to step down and find a new opportunity, a new venture. And we're seeing that with some of the leaders for my client. And I mean, it's sad that it comes to this, but in many ways, I respect that decision that they make in those cases. Um, and then I look around at some of the other employees that I deal with on a day to day and you know, they're, they're concerned, but we've talked about it. We just say, man, you just got to keep being productive, right? You got to keep demonstrating value because when you do, depending on how leadership changes, you're going to be in as good of a position as possible. And even if you get to a situation where that change affects you, you know, in corporate mergers, people get let go. If that happens, well, if you're being productive, you're consistently providing value. That's a good thing for you. That's what builds up your self-esteem, which proves your value to yourself. And, and, and to a degree, that's another form of integrity is having integrity to yourself. And so and I just think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting moment that my client and all the people that I deal with there are going through right now. And in many ways, it, it, you, there are lessons to be learned as you go through this process in many ways, it's like a pattern interrupt. It can shake your world. It can rock your world. Um, but we'll see how it all rolls out. But I know, I just know for me, I, what I'm doing is refocusing on my business, continuing to 
retain my existing clients, attract new ones, diversify my portfolio of clients. And it's important because when you have all your eggs in one basket, that can be troubling. Thankfully, I don't have that. Um, but, you know, when you, lo- when you lose a big client, and granted, I haven't lost a client, but I think about it, um, that, you know, there's, it's potentially at risk because new leadership's coming in. And I don't know what that's going to mean for me in my future. So it's just very interesting um, dealing with change. And I think the right idea is to understand that in many ways you have limited to zero ability to affect the change that's going on around you. And in many ways, it's better just to look inward and just ask yourself, what can you do to improve your situation? What can you do to demonstrate your own value, to be productive, and to ultimately boost your self-esteem, knowing that whatever the future has in front of you, that you are well-equipped mentally and, uh, and skill-wise to adapt to the changing world. I just, it's a very interesting time. And, you know, I kind of ramble a little bit on it, but I just think it's important to talk about things like this because we're going through this pandemic and there's a lot of volatility in our economy right now. There are a lot of people that are in some cases losing jobs or previously lost jobs. In other cases, you know, companies are desperate for employees and, you know, they're kind of in chaotic situations at their work. There's just a ton of change going on right now. But change is often a very good thing. Change can be an opportunity to put yourself in a better position um, where there is often some chaos. That's usually where opportunity is created. So sometimes it's just a matter of shifting your perspective and adjusting to it, just changing your point of view. And suddenly change goes from being very scary to something of a huge potential opportunity. So um, just thought I'd share those words of wisdom. Okay, let's let's now get into inflation. And again, I, you know, we're live streaming here. I, I welcome your thoughts on the live stream. Feel free to type them in um, on Facebook or on YouTube. I'll read your questions and comments on the air. We'll have a little bit of a discussion. But I, I really want to get into inflation because this has been in the news and it's something we've talked a little bit about on this podcast on previous episodes. But Things are getting expensive. I mean, things have always been expensive, but we're seeing inflation expanding into a lot of other categories of our of our economy. I mean, for some time now, we've been dealing with inflation in healthcare, inflation in college education, inflation in housing, and especially lately in housing. But we're now seeing inflation happening in a lot of other categories. And yeah, a lot of it's a result of the pandemic and coming out of the shutdowns, but there's a lot more going on. And and that's why I want to break some of this down, just so we kind of have a clear understanding of the world around us. And so- well, there's one headline in this particular um, article is from CNBC, and inflation speeds up in April as consumer prices leap 4.2%. That's April of 2021 versus April of 2020. The fastest leap forward in a single month since 2008. And Mike Ryan says, yeah, gas is getting expensive. And you're right. We are going to get to gasoline here in a moment, Mike. But gas is getting expensive, not just in California, but all over the place. So economists have predicted 3.6. It ended up being 4.2% increase. And there, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, it's just temporary, right? It's just the pandemic. And, you know, there's been a lot of volatility because of the pandemic, the shutdown, the startup of the economy. So a lot of people think there's not much to to worry about. But there's a lot in this because they 
when you look at this consumer price index going up 4.2%, you might say, well, some of it's gasoline, right? And gas is usually a very volatile component of it. Energy in general is very volatile, and so is food. But even if you subtract food and energy, the consumer price index went up 3%. Um, it went up just 0.9% in one month. You know, And that sounds like not very much, but it's actually a lot. I mean, if we stay on this track, if it continues like this for a certain period of time, we could be seeing really um, you know, huge differences in prices. And this is an interesting nugget from this article. Used car and truck prices. You know, we like talking about cars on this podcast. Used car and truck prices, which are seen as a key inflation indicator, surged 21% including a 10% increase in April alone. Um, that's amazing. I mean, but, you know, obviously, people, if more people are buying used cars, then it's because they can't afford the new ones. So, yeah, it is an inflation indicator. But used cars are becoming more expensive. Um, lumber is up 124% in 2021. That seems low. I mean, my... You know, my my uh, spidey senses and, and some of the research I've done, lumber is up like three to four percent. I mean, I'm sorry, three to four times, three to four X. But according to this article, lumber, you know, overall, 124 percent. So that's more than doubled in price. That's more than two X um, amid persistent demand for building materials. Even copper is up 36 percent. So just lots of, you know, ultimately what this is, is just tremendous demand for products. But let's look at housing now. Housing is interesting. So in this one article, if you ever go to fool.com, I know it sounds like a ridiculous URL, but it's the Motley Fool. And they're like these financial guys that they do. They have a talk show. Um, they, they do they have a great website, but they're on their website, fool.com. They did an analysis of the San Diego market. And according to them, they said San Diego, and I presume they mean the city of San Diego, has a median impri- uh, home price of $655,000. Now, the county, it's even higher. So um, in the county, San Diego County, um, according to uh, CoreLogic, and you know they bought out D- DataQuick some time ago, but according to CoreLogic, the San Diego County median home price in February was $740,000. So like almost three quarters of a million dollars. And that's the median. So that means half of the homes are sold above that price and half of the homes are sold below. I mean, that's extraordinary. But according to this one article, the city of San Diego, $655,000 for the median home price. And that represents a 9.2 increase in just a year. So prices up, you know, roughly speaking, 10%. I mean, that's tremendous. And, and rent, too. So the median rent in the city of San Diego was in, in December of 2020. So this is about four or five months ago, was $2,375 a month. That's just rent. I mean, it doesn't count utilities and living expenses. Um, that's, you know, on an annualized basis, what is that? That's probably, you know, almost $30,000 a year. Well, is that right? Yeah, yeah, almost $30,000 a year just that you would pay in rent. And you only want your rent, I think, generally to be about, what, 33% of your total salary? That means you got to have a salary of almost $90,000 a year to live in San Diego to afford a median rent. You know, not, not a great place, not a terrible place, but just to be in the middle. Um, and that's up 4.3% over the previous year. 
And the national average for rent, by the way, is $1,740 a month. So, you know, San Diego, of course, is going to be more expensive. It's a more desirable place to live. But at the same time, there is a real supply problem. Now, Mike Ryan on the live stream talking about used cars and trucks. He says they're both up. Um, Lack of inventory is driving prices big time. I have an offer for my 2020 Tundra for four grand higher than I paid. Really? Wow. So there's a lack of inventory of used vehicles is what Mike's saying. Um, So those are getting gobbled up, right? Because people aren't buying the new cars. And in a lot of cases, new cars, they're having trouble manufacturing them. And we're going to get into that in a minute. Um, But yeah, the whole, the volatility in the automobile market is is crazy. It's it's very, it's experiencing a tremendous amount of inflation and shortages and all sorts of distortions. Um, But, you know, back to, Housing and you know why in the hell is housing going up so much? Now, in my opinion, a lot of it is because there are restrictions to growth, right? And this typically comes down to government policies. Government policies often, you know, they claim to want to help the average guy, but usually they do the opposite. Government um, restrictions on growth, like we have here in Poway with Prop FF, prevents development. Um, but in areas where Prop FF no longer applies, they're actually building. But overall, I think we've been we've been having not anywhere near enough building or construction of new homes, not just in Poway or San Diego, but really in the state of California. It's been a problem for a long time. And it's just like Econ 101, right? If supply is low, but demand is high, right? So if the supply of homes is limited because they're not approving the construction of enough of them. But the demand is high because people like to live in California. Well, then what happens to prices? Prices keep going up. But it's it's exasperated even further. Um, well, it's exasperated even further because of the pandemic, right? Because the pandemic is displacing people. We're seeing people moving out of expensive places like San Francisco, and moving to suburbs or moving to less expensive places in the state of California and including leaving California entirely. So we're, we're seeing disruptions. So that's causing people to move, which is then creating surges of demand in certain areas, particularly where prices are a lot less expensive, which then causes those lower prices to go up. So again, it's a lot of this is triggered and people will say, well, it's the virus. Okay, the virus is part of it, but when the government shuts down part of the economy, that is the distortion that screws it all up. Um, so, yeah, people are moving out because of this, and it kind of leads me to another kind of a tangent. Before I get there, Mike Ryan on the live stream, another comment. Lack of inventory for both new and used production issues. Yeah, there are production issues with new cars. We're going to talk about that in a moment, Mike. Um And we're going to get into gas. I'm going to go deep on gas here in a minute. But I just want to talk about housing. And I had a, gosh, this is probably a couple of years ago. I did a podcast here with Jessica Johnson. Now, Jessica is wonderful. She lives here in Poway. She runs a website called Hidden San Diego. um, And she had just written a book called Abandoned San Diego. She, and she's also done, uh, has a website called Hidden California. So what she does is she finds all these really cool places to go explore, you know, historical places, places that are not commonly 
referenced in popular things to do, right? There's definitely on the underground side. She'll find these cool historical places, cool artistic places, and she invites people to check them out and they share stories. And her website, I cannot recommend it enough. I mean, she, and she was a, just a wonderful guest and she talked about her book, Abandoned San Diego. Um, it was just fabulous. I mean, talking about all these old abandoned historical buildings, it was great. Well, during that podcast, there was a moment where we were talking about, I guess, what were we talking about? We got into the housing crisis somehow. And I had made a comment, well, we need to build more houses. We need supply, you know, because that's going to help, you know, reduce demand. And then she made a comment to me. She says, well, there's, there's millions of houses that are vacant. Uh, we don't need to build more. And I remember thinking for a moment there and I thought, Okay, I could challenge her on this, but I really don't want to go down that because it was a tangent because we were having a beautiful discussion about her book and about all the adventures that she shares. But I I want to come back to this point because I've been seeing people commenting about this online that there are actually 17 million housing units that are vacant. And people are making a big deal out of this. They're making a big deal like we need to force these terrible owners to rent them out or to sell them because we have people that are desperate. There's a housing crisis. Why in the hell aren't these people using their property? And they, they assume that they're just a bunch of rich people or corporate people that are squatting on their assets and hoarding it. Um, and 17 million, you may think about it. That's like, I don't know, 10 to 15% of the total housing units that exist are empty. But when you look at that, a lot of that's because they're in between occupants. You know, it's a house that's for sale. And maybe the the seller has already moved into their new place and their old place is vacant, but it's up for sale. There's other cases where it's an apartment or a rental that might happen to be empty because it's in between tenants. There are also cases where homes are just entirely abandoned, which kind of goes back to Jessica Johnson and some of her abandoned San Diego. Those are typically historical homes, not homes people would live in. But gosh, like the city of Detroit experiencing a tremendous amount of abandoned real estate. I mean, they can't almost, they almost can't give it away. So it's interesting because I think a lot of people point to all of this abandoned, or excuse me, all of this vacant real estate saying that's the reason housing prices are such a problem. That's why we don't have enough supply, but the supply is just sitting there. Some people get angry because it's Airbnb and maybe they only rent it out for one week a month, but the other three quarters of the month, it's sitting there idle. And you know, then people want to say, you want to ban Airbnb. And I always think that's just not the right approach, friends. Um, a lot of it's in people in between, uh, in between places, but people essentially, they want to have a, a tax on property owners that if your property is vacant, you're going to get stung with a high tax. Is that right? I mean, that doesn't seem right to me. That's almost like, you know, an invasion of property rights. It's like a, um, a violation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is what this podcast is all about. We know that wealthy people, the reason that they're wealthy is they know how to manage their money and manage their assets. And most wealthy people, if they own property, they're going to monetize that property. They're going to 
have renters or they're going to sell it and liquidate it and put their money somewhere else where they can get a better return on investment. In this particular market, yeah, they might hold that property because the value is going up. But in the meantime, they're going to rent it out, especially here in San Diego where rents are dramatically higher than the national average. Now, there are some cases where you'll see rich people squat on places. And I remember, when was this? This was... um, a couple of years ago, my daughter Shannon participated in an Ironman um, half triathlon, and it was up at what's the name of the ski resort in British Columbia? Um, I can't remember the name of it. It's escaping me. It's a very famous ski resort, and it's a couple hours north of Vancouver. And we were up there. That was great. Had a, she did well. Or her whole team from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo did great. We had a wonderful time. But then afterwards, we came back to Vancouver and our family spent, I don't know, three or four days in Vancouver, British Columbia, which, by the way, is just a gorgeous city. Beautiful and a, uh, a gorgeous area. Lots of diversity of people and restaurants. And it reminded me a lot of San Francisco in so many different ways. Just a great blend of ethnicities and and culture, just wonderful. Well, when we were we did one of those tours, those biking tours, which are fun. I mean, you get a, on the bike and we rode around the city and we stopped at various spots and there was a you know person in their twenties and telling us stories about the city history and that was wonderful. Oh, Whistler, yeah, thank you very much, uh, Chris. It was it was Whistler, um, and uh, that was it was a wonderful place. Uh, Whistler. I mean, it was a ski resort, but it, in the summertime, it worked out great for the triathlon. Well, when we were getting that tour, I remember the tour guy telling us that there were a lot of wealthy people from Asia, primarily from China, uh, that had come to British Columbia. And we've been hearing a lot about that, where there's been a great deal of um, Asian immigration into British Columbia, but that they were buying real estate in British Columbia, and then just not occupying it. They were just holding it like they would buy an asset. They would buy a stock or they would buy, you know, any kind of a, a dormant, you know, asset. And it was really making a lot of people in Vancouver very angry because it was limiting supply. Now, I never really went back and verified and to see really how pervasive of a problem this is or if if it's just being overblown. You know, sometimes these these facts can be distorted and become almost mythical. But in my opinion, most people that are wealthy are wealthy for a reason. (laughs) And they're wealthy because they know how to manage their money. And they're in this case, if you own property, they're going to figure out a way to monetize it to the maximum amount. And that means holding an asset that's appreciating in value. And at the same time, renting it. So it's just, to me, this is an interesting topic. And it's, it's a little bit of a rabbit hole tangent here about how, how much of an impact does unoccupied housing, vacant housing have on the price of real estate for both buying and for renting? Interesting thoughts. Now here in San Diego County, um, you know, I would imagine that the occupancy rates are pretty low because for places that are for rent, because they want to turn those things over, especially when rent's so high. Bunch of comments here on the live stream. Mike Ryan says, housing is insane. Great if you are an owner, bad if you are a buyer. What average person can afford to rent here? Yeah. I mean, for me as a property owner, this is great. You know, this is the thing with inflation. Inflation is wonderful for rich people, and it's terrible for the poor. 
Um, because for rich people, they're going to see their assets appreciate at a very aggressive pace. And for the poor, it's going to be that much harder for them to accumulate wealth. And in this case, housing. It's, I mean, we just said the, the median home price in San Diego County is $740,000. Now, let's pre- 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 presume that you're a first-time home buyer. And you know, back in the day, it used to be you needed to put 20% down. So that would be 74,000 times two. That'd be $148,000 down payment. I mean, how many 20-year-olds are walking around with $148,000 in the bank to plunk on a down payment? Now, I know you can get into a house for a lot lower down payment these days, but still, yeah, to your point, Mike, it, it, housing is insane. And it, it, who does it harm the most? It harms the people at the bottom the most. It, those that are that are poor or those that are in the middle class that are striving to build their career and build wealth, it's hard to get up to that upper rung. And frankly, in my opinion, a lot of the reason that housing is so expensive is because there's just been so much limit on the on the creation of more supply. Which that's kind of one of the reasons why you know here in Poway, the the development on Poway Road, I'm generally supportive of it. And I know people that live near there are not. I mean, Mike, you made a good case when you were on the podcast that you're not a fan of it. Pete Neal has also been on the podcast, talked about why he is not um, uh, is not warmly embracing, to put it politely, uh, not warmly embracing the change on Poway Road. I am generally supportive of it because I think we need a lot more inventory. Um, and I think as we build more housing, that's going to be better for People like especially my my two children, they're in their 20s. At some point, they're going to need to, you know, going to want to buy real estate. And I would hope that they could actually do it on their own. You know, I know for a lot of young people, they try to get their parents to co-sign on a loan or get money from their parents. And I mean, ideally, my children would be able to earn their own money. And that's that's my preference. Um, But if housing prices keep going up like this, there's just no way that they'll be able to do that. Certainly not in Poway or in San Diego in general, um, unless they find like a really low end, inexpensive condominium somewhere as a starter. And frankly, that's the best strategy for a starter is something. Yeah. Um, what else? A couple more comments on the live stream. Uh, Chris so hey, he says, having renters now is a big problem as well. See what the last supervisor vote was. Can't even give notice to renter. Ten- can't even give notice to tenants. Chris, that's a fair point. Having being a landlord is awful right now because if they don't pay their rent, they can't be evicted. So the renter can essentially squat on that property. Um, and at the, in the meantime, you know, the landlord's still got to pay the mortgage. So, yeah, that's that's a tough nut. I mean, now, granted, I hope that's going to be temporary. But again, that's a distortion created by the pandemic, really a distortion created by the government reacting to the pandemic. So, so much of this volatility that we're seeing, they like to point to the virus, but it's not the virus. It's the government that created these policies that screwed everything up. And that's why prices are so darn expensive. Um, Chris goes on to say, Whistler, Hangcouver, or Hongcouver. So I guess like a little shout out to Hong Kong. Yeah, there's a huge Asian population in Vancouver. I thought it was a great city. I really liked it. Um, Chris goes on to say, builders can't build unless they have a certain, um, have a certain or number sold, certain of number sold. It's just a measure of obtaining construction financing. 
Uh, Pete goes on to say, my entry was a fixer upper. I learned a lot fixing it up the point where the city organization <laughs> to the point where the city organization got in the way. So see, we keep bumping into a lot of these government policies that kind of distort the, the, the system. You would think like in Pete's case, you know, he bought a fixer upper and that was a property that, you know, was definitely a, a starting pos- uh, point for someone that wanted to buy and to get their foot in the door of and home ownership. You would think the city would encourage that property owner to develop on that property and to improve the property because by improving the property, not only are they going to raise the value of that property and the properties around them, but frankly, for the city, they'll be able to tax it more for property tax. But then sometimes the city will will rub the other way. A lot of times they will because of NIMBY laws where the other neighbors want to prevent more construction, more development in the community around them. Um, Chris says, uh, Pete, don't pull a permit. Uh, nope, it's a mechanism to get more tax. Yeah, so that's what the permitting is. Permitting, when you want to do construction, can be significant. Um, it's it's not a trivial cost. And it's just to have a government inspector come out there and look at it and say, yay or nay. And if it's nay, the things you got to fix. So it's something. Um, in a lot of cases, a lot of this is distorted by government. Now, there is another angle to this whole housing thing. In, in particular here in California, because we're hearing all the stories, right, about how people are moving out of California. They've had it with this state. They're out of here. And people will say it's too expensive and I can't buy a house and I can't afford the cost of living. Other people get upset with the politics, particularly during this pandemic. They're upset with Gavin Newsom. And that's part of the reason that he's uh, being recalled. Um, and then Sometimes, you know, it makes for a fascinating news story, but then you wonder, you know, how much, how many people really are leaving and what's really happening in the state. Now, one of the the people that I, I enjoy engaging with here in my local hometown of Poway is Chris Cruz. And she runs a website called Poway South and North Votes. And she's a community activist, very thorough, does her homework. I mean, I greatly respect her, even though we happen to disagree on a lot of things. But I, I think she does good work, especially from her point of view. And she had posted something that said that in the California, you know, has just experienced its first decline in population. And she was trying to prove that it's the, the real reason isn't because people are leaving California. It's for something else. And according to this article, which comes from the data comes from the California Department of Finance. So it comes from the government itself. They said officials cited three major factors for the for the decline in population in California. There were approximately 24,000 fewer births. OK, that makes sense, right? Less people having children during a pandemic when there's all this uncertainty, not only about their economic future, but about the health of themselves and their child. Okay, that makes sense. 100,000 fewer immigrants. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's for sure, because A, we, we had Trump that was scaring away all the immigrants um, and Trump revoking visas for students. Um, and for people here that were legally here on working visas, Trump revoked their visas, sent them back. Um, so, yeah, there was there was less immigration and 51,000 more deaths due to covid. And that's true. I mean, that those those are significant numbers. Um, but what was interesting is that in another article that I read and this one was from also from CNBC and it was 
also talking about California's growth rate. Now, this was measured not on the calendar year 2020, 2020, but instead from July 1st of 2019 to July 1st of 2020. So it was a one-year period, but phase shift by six months. And in this article, they talked about at that point in time, California was still growing in that window. But it was growing at an extraordinarily slow amount, a very low rate of increase. But in this article, it says, but the bigger news from Wednesday's new population estimate was that 135,600 people left the state then moved here. It's only the 12th time since 1900 the state has had a net migration loss. Extraordinary. And, and this kind of, this 136,000, well, if you add up, you know, if you looked at from the, the article that came from the Chris had shared from the, with data from the Department of Finance, 136,000 people moving out of California is more than 24,000 fewer births, is more than 100,000 fewer immigrants, and is more than 51,000 more deaths. So this, this is amazing. I kind of wonder if the Department of Finance in California, you know, chose not to include this information because it would reflect poorly on their state. Because, you know, if it's due to fewer births and fewer immigrants and more deaths due to COVID, I mean, they could point the finger and blame someone else. But if people are moving out of California because it's too damn expensive to live here or they're upset with the politics, well, they don't want to say that. I mean, that kind of rubs it the wrong way on their on their whole PR strategy. Um, and in this article, it talks about there's a niche industry that has emerged around this trend with real estate agents starting websites like ExitCalifornia.org and LeavingTheBayArea.com. As the state's median home price hit a record high of $712,000. That was in September of 2020. I'm sure it's higher now. And then goes on to say with COVID and a lot of tech companies allowing people to work remotely, it's opened the door for a lot of people to consider making the move out of California. Now, if you see what's happening in the city of San Francisco and the rent there, the vacancy rates are really high. Rent prices are dropping like a rock. I mean, because a lot of people have left because it was too expensive. My daughter left. She was living in San Francisco for just two and a half months. And then when COVID hit, she, she could work remotely and she moved back home. Still working for an office in San Francisco, but just working remotely from Poway. Um, a lot of people did that, but staying in the state of California. But according to this article, 136,000 people moved out of California. And, and, and that's what you'll find is that if you look at the number of people that move from California to the other 49 states is higher, is greater than the people moving from the other 49 states into California. That's why when you look at the rental prices of like a U-Haul truck or a U-Haul trailer, let's just say a one-way trip from San Francisco to Houston, that one-way trip from San Francisco to Houston is really expensive. But the, the price to go from Houston to San Francisco is really cheap. I mean, it's like almost a factor of three to four times. So I'm, I'm going to pull some numbers out of, out of the air here, but it's roughly um, aligned according to order of magnitude. Um, from San Francisco to Houston, it's something like $2,000, $2,500 to rent a truck or a trailer. But going in the other direction, it's like $500, $700 to go from Houston to San Francisco. And that's just reflective, again, of supply and demand. 
there's less trailers in San Francisco available for people to rent because people are using them and leaving San Francisco. So it's interesting how Econ 101 plays a role in all of this. But there's other interesting angles to this story that I thought was something. Um, People who move to the United States from other countries often come to California first, but they don't settle here. So that was the explanation why people are leaving California, because they come here first as an immigrant, because they know as an immigrant, they're generally going to be more warmly received than maybe in other parts of the country. But here they can get a lay of the land of America and then decide later to move to some other city, you know, Phoenix or St. Louis or New York or wherever they want to move to. I never really had considered that dynamic. I think that's fair. Um, on the live stream, Pete Neal said, not enough have moved out. 1.3 million more have to leave before Texas overtakes California. Yeah, that's the other angle, um, is that for people that live in California that like it here, they're, they're thinking, hey, these people are leaving? You know, that's good. <laughs> Get rid of them. We, we don't want them anymore. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> I don't necessarily take that point of view, but I understand it. Um, and that's, a, frankly, a point of view that I think Chris Cruz was sharing on her Facebook page. And it's, um, you know, a lot of times the people that are leaving California, some of them are leaving purely for economic reasons. And it's terrible. But they can't afford even just a, you know, a basic standard of living here. They have to move to another city and another state. And I've seen stories where people have sold their, you know, below average house in California and moved to like Missouri and bought this, you know, huge house on a piece of property, looked gorgeous for less than they sold their below average house in California. And people are like, oh, this is a way better way of living. For some people, that makes tremendous economic sense to leave. But there are also people, you know, that are, they're probably, you know, MAGA people, Donald Trump fans um, that are just flabbergasted with the politics in California. And I think when the pandemic hit and a lot of the state was shut down and California has been much more aggressive with their shutdowns during the pandemic than a lot of other states, that really rubbed the wrong way of a lot of our conservative friends or our Republican friends on the right. Um, and there's, certain, there's a certain number of people that are moving out for political reasons. Now, I don't know how many of them there are, but they tend to be the most vocal, right? <laughs> They'll tell you all why they're leaving. If you see some of the stories on Facebook. Um, and it said here that, yeah, more people are dying. And a lot of that has to do with the COVID pandemic and fewer people are having children. Um, so it, it's just an interesting dynamic what's happening in the state of California. But the, re- the reason people, a lot of people are moving is because it's so damn expensive. And it's expensive, in my opinion, primarily because there's just not enough supply. Because for, you know, for every handful of a of, uh, group of people that want to leave California because they don't like the politics, there are an unlimited number of people that want to move here because for them, it's like paradise on earth because of the weather and the economy and um, the casual you know, style of living. For many people, California is a dream come true, but they don't move here because it's so darn expensive. I mean, if you're moving from a small city in Ohio and you want to go buy a place in Poway, California, you'd never be able to afford it. Um, so 
it's something. I mean, yeah, it, in my opinion, housing prices are just insane because they just don't build enough supply. Now, Sacramento is finally changing their tune. They're becoming much more friendly to housing development. That's why they're, these Democrats are calling themselves Yimbies rather than NIMBYs. I think that's a refreshing change. Um, but here, even our hometown of Poway, we're struggling. There is more construction, which I'm you know, generally supportive of for all these reasons that I'm explaining, not to mention property rights and people that own property should be able to build on them. Um, but change is hard. And this kind of goes back to my corporate client. Change is hard. And it's hard to control the world around you. Sometimes it's better just to focus on what you can change yourself. Uh, Pete Neal on the live stream says, California is ranked fifth in GDP. If it was a country, Texas is ranked eighth between Italy and Brazil. Yeah, it's true. But if you look at California GDP percentage, well, yeah, that's the gross domestic product, but it's it's heavily skewed, right? There is, you talk about wealth inequality and income inequality in California, it's massive. I mean, there are some insane rich people in California that own fantastic companies that are, are driving that gross domestic product, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, but you know, throughout the state. But at the same time, poverty is tremendous in California. We, we're seeing homelessness all over the place because it's so darn expensive. So if you look at cost of living and factor that in with GDP, California starts to fall very quickly because, yeah, we can point to the fact that it's got great gross domestic product if it existed as a standalone country. But, yeah, if you factor in cost of living, California is a difficult place to live for a lot of people. Now, if you already live in California and you own property, then consider yourself fortunate. And I'm one of those, you know, is that, is that privilege? I guess it is. Um, but it's hard. Um, California is, is, uh, is a beautiful place and it, I've lived here my whole life. And, um, but you know, it's just like anywhere. It's, it's not utopia. You know, it's got its downside and we're, we're talking a little bit about the downside. Um, housing, in my opinion, is just insane expensive. Uh, Pete goes on to say, where would the pricing of housing be if 1.3 million moved out? Well, it'd be great. If 1.3 million people moved out, there would be more vacancies. There'd be more homes on the market for sale, which means it'd be a more competitive marketplace and houses wouldn't be selling for above asking price. Now here, you know, in San Diego County, even here, I'm talking to realtors in Poway, they put a house up for sale. They'll get multiple bids above the asking price and the house is sold in a matter of weeks when it used to take three, four, six months to sell. Yeah. So if 1.3 million moved out, that would have a huge impact. It would, you know, supply and demand. Demand would go down, supply would go up. And as a result, pricing would go down. But Pete, how are you going to get 1.3 million people to move out? <laughs> you know, some of it's happening naturally, but you know, at the same time, people are moving here. So it's something. Um, let's talk about a couple of more categories here, and I'll go through these, you know, kind of quickly. Lumber, like I said, I've seen reports of it. I already said it's up over 100, percent which means it's up 2x. But I've seen it where it's up three to four x. Um, in a lot of categories of lumber, this is causing housing to go up. Now, the average cost of building a new home is up $36,000 just based on this recent inflation in lumber. 
So think about like the places that are being built along Poway Road. You see all the lumber going up, the, the framing, all the two by fours and the joists and the, all that lumber that's going up. Makes you wonder, when did they buy that? You know, buying and selling lumber is like playing the commodities game because the price fluctuates with the market. Um, if you buy it at the right time, if they would have bought that lumber, you know, let's say three, four months ago and are selling it and, and building homes with it, that could be a great boon to them. But if they're buying the lumber now, boy, that's that's tricky. That's going to be problems. Um, but lumber is also you know, expensive now because supply chains have been disrupted, right? When they shut down parts of the economy, then suddenly there was no demand for lumber. And then now they turn the economy back on. It's like jolting on, off, on, off. Now there's a sudden surge. So there's a lot more demand for that lumber and it's compounded by the housing crisis where there's a demand for more construction. And now finally, a lot of politicians are opening up to building more. And then, then there's also the tariffs, you know, Trump, Mr. Tariff man, tariffs are a terrible policy. Tariffs tax Americans. You know, he was always about America first and he wanted to have taxes on imports from China. Well, lumber is imported. A lot of it comes from Canada. And what do we do? We, we tariff it. Well, who does that tax? It doesn't tax the Canadians. It taxes the Americans that buy the lumber, that import the lumber. And that just gets passed on down the supply chain. And it costs you know, the end user of the home, the buyer of that brand new construction, which we're seeing in Poway and other parts of the county. The price of those going up because lumber's going up. Pete Neal on the live stream says, hmm, get people to move out. <laughs> Perhaps three earthquakes in the desert, of course, little real estate damage and more great views in the aftermath. Um, you know, Pete, remember, Pete and I went to Pahrump last weekend or no, two weekends ago for when he was racing his Corvette. And we were joking about Pahrump as the, you know. Pahrump, there's like there are whorehouses in Pahrump. And so sometimes people think when you go to Pahrump, that's what you're doing. Um, but we were there. to He was racing his car. But I always think of Pahrump because of Art Bell. And remember, Art Bell is that late night radio talk show guy that talked about ancient religions and and, um, you know, ancient aliens, which has now become a big thing on the History Channel. I just was fascinated by Art Bell. And he broadcast from the Kingdom of Nye, from Pahrump. In fact, when I was there in Pahrump previously, I went by and I found his uh, compound and his broadcast studio. It was unbelievable. They still have all the antennas up there. It's really neat. Well, one of the guests on um, his show was a guy named Gordon Michael Scallion, who was, again, I'm in the, the, to me, this is entertaining. I don't necessarily believe it, but it's just fabulously entertaining. And Gordon Michael Scallion was a futurist and he would have these dreams and he would think about um, what the, what was going to happen to the world. And he had this vision that the earth's axis was going to be some sort of a magnetic uh, torque on the axis and it was going to shift. And then that was going to cause, you know, uh, global ice caps to melt. This is, you know, in the, this is from the early nineties before global warming became a super big deal. And as a result there was going to be huge disruption and much more water covering land masses to the point where parts of Eastern California would become beachfront property and parts of even of Nevada would become beachfront property. So Pete, maybe that's how you get 1.3 million people to move out of California is to see a shift in the earth's axis and we can rock the world here. Um, 
I don't know. It's just, it's fun stuff. I, that, I, I enjoy that. It's almost, it's science fiction is what it is, but it's sort of real life-ish. Um, but yeah, lumber's out. Okay, let's talk about gasoline. This is what Mike wanted to get into. Okay, now I don't know much about gas because we drive electric vehicles, right? And um, we have two electric cars, a Tesla a Model 3 and a Hyundai Kona. And we charge our cars off of our solar panels on our roof. We got a cool system. So when gas prices are fluctuating, I don't really pay attention. But then I hear a lot of people shrieking about this. And you know, there's been a bunch of stuff in the news in the last week with gas. But I looked it up. The Poway Costco is selling for three seventy five a gallon. And the mobile station in Poway, which is near the intersection of Pomerado and Twin Peaks, where the Poway protesters usually set up shop, um, that mobile station there, it's $4.03 a gallon. And I'm sure it's much more than that in other parts of the of um, Poway or in, in, in San Diego. And Pete, you know, puts premium into his Corvette Calypso, so he's going to pay a lot more than that. But Dallas, gas price is $2.36, Atlanta, $2.52. I remember... Uh, maybe a year and a half ago, I think it was September of 2019, my wife and I did a vacation. I did a podcast about it. We went to Butte, Montana to do family ancestry for my side of the family. And then we did the trifecta of going to, from Nashville to Memphis to New Orleans, which is a wonderful trip. And we rented a car in Nashville and spent you know three or four days there, drove to Memphis, spent three or four days there, then drove to New Orleans, spent three or four days there, and then flew back. I remember we were filling up the rental car in New Orleans to take it back to the airport. And it was like, I don't know, $2.22 a gallon. I mean, it was just insane how much less expensive it is than here in California. But gas prices are going up. And um, it's something. Now, here also on the live stream, Chris Sohei says, problem is the new people moving here are coming with $300,000 salaries. Well, yeah, if you move to California, you better be making good money. So you can afford a place to live. That makes sense. Um, companies, I'm sure, are recruiting high-priced talent. I guess that's sort of the good news is a lot of people that are moving to California tend to be more highly educated, more high income. But then there's another segment of our of, of people moving to California that are frankly um, low income. You know, they're they're immigrants, um, poor people coming here. That's a you know, in some cases, you know, that that's one aspect of the homelessness crisis because there are programs in California that cater to the homeless that are much more generous than other parts of the country. Um, yeah, we went through that um, with one of my previous podcast guests who had been homeless and lived on the streets um, and then and then later on went on to, you know, graduate from UCLA. In fact, do I have his book here? I think I do. Yeah, here it is. My Way Home, Michael Galden. Um, this was a wonderful podcast that Mike and I did, and I learned so much about homelessness. But yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of that. Then there's of course there's you know immigrants that come here, both legal and illegal, and and they're going to be lower income. So we got an interesting diversity, but not a whole lot of just you know middle of the road, middle class folks. I mean, it's because of the, the housing, in my opinion. But let's look at, at gasoline. So. There's been this cyber hack that has happened to the pipeline along the East Coast, right? And this is, you know, we just had the cyber hack at Scripps Hospital here in San Diego where, you know, these hackers from, I don't know where they're from. I think they're the, the ones that are attacking the pipeline, I think they determined they were from Russia, 
but not necessarily aligned with the Russian government. But who knows what the truth is? But I know that the hackers that went after Scripps um, Health in San Diego, um, they were ransomware people, right? They basically freeze all your company assets and they say, you know, pay us $10 million and then we'll unlock it, um, which is just so unbelievably unethical and immoral. But people are getting away with it. Well, at any rate, um, which, by the way, is proof back up your data like all the time. Um, I On my computer, I use um, um, a tool called Carbonite. So my data is constantly being backed up. So in case I ever get hit with one of those viruses, I've got all my data and I can say, fine, you know, screw you. And I can restore my life instantly. Um, but at any rate, this cyber attack affected this pipeline, which... It doesn't affect the pipeline itself, obviously, but it affected the company and their ability to manage that pipeline. And so what's happened is, is now there's a lot less gasoline that's available. And we're going into the summer months where there's all this pent up demand because of the pandemic and the government's response to the pandemic that shut people in their houses and prevented them from traveling. Well, now the, with the, with the, um, you know, the relaxing of some of the shutdown rules, now people are wanting to go out. People are wanting to travel, but now there's less gasoline and prices are starting to go up a bit and people are freaking out about it there. I mean, it's something. So, and then, then on top of it, the other part of the challenge is, is this time of the year, prices on gasoline go up anyways, because they, all, all the refineries have to switch from their winter blend to their summer blend. And this is part of the environmental rules that, you know, help keep our air clean. But again, government policy that forces these changes that cause disruptions that cause prices of gasoline to go up. And then it's exasperated by that when it's suddenly there's this cyber attack. Um, Mike Ryan says, always something to drive prices on gas. Yeah, they always come up with some excuse, right? Sometimes it's they got to do maintenance on their refinery. Well, if they would just build more refineries then they wouldn't be so reliant on when one of them goes down because of maintenance. But why aren't there more refineries? Because the government restricts the ability to build more refineries. That's how they always typically breaks down. Well, one of the other reasons that gasoline is so darn expensive, I remember I said in here in Poway, it's like $4 and three cents at the mobile station, but in, in um, Atlanta, it's only two fifty two. in Dallas, two thirty six. I mean, it's almost double the price for gas in California than it is in other parts of the country. And again, part of it is because of the summer blend, but a lot of it's taxes. And it's extraordinary how much of the price you pay at the pump goes in taxes. And I'm going to break this down. I'm not going to go too deep on it, but the federal government charges an excise tax of 18.4 cents a gallon. California has an excise tax of 50.5 cents per gallon. And that includes a 12.7 cents per gallon from the controversial Senate bill number one that became law to improve infrastructure and develop transportation across the state. That was that gas tax increase that um, was put in place, angered a lot of people, including Carl DeMaio here in San Diego, who led that effort to try to, with you know, to recall the, the, the tax increase on gasoline. But California voters reinforced it and said, we want the cat when we want that tax increase, because, again, people mostly desperate for more infrastructure. But you've got 18.4 cents from the federal government, 50.5 cents from the state government. Um, 
Then there's the state sales tax, which can vary by area, but it's about 10.7 cents per gallon on gasoline. And so altogether, Californians pay about 79.6 cents per gallon in gas taxes. But that's just the taxes. It doesn't count the fees. <laughs> so it makes you, the, the government plays a lot of word games. What's a tax? What's a fee? There's an underground storage tank fee of two cents per gallon that was reported when there were some gas tanks that were leaking. So you got to pay two cents per gallon for the storage fee. Then there is a, they call it fuels under the cap fee, which essentially is a cap and trade deal where they're buying and selling uh, credits for carbon emissions. That adds 14.3 cents per gallon. Then there's the low carbon fuel standard, which requires suppliers of fuels with high carbon intensity to purchase credits from makers of fuels with lower carbon. So again, more cap and trade, more management of the economy, trying to keep carbon emissions down, which I get you, I hear you. Um, But that adds 22.6 cents per gallon on top of it. So the fees are 38.9. The taxes are 79.6 cents. That's $1.19 per gallon in taxes and fees. So we're paying what? Roughly about four bucks a gallon, according to the mobile station here in Poway. A dollar, make the math easy, a dollar 20, which would be almost a third of that price is just taxes on the gas. And I mean, for me, thank God I drive an electric vehicle. Um, you know, I don't pay attention to gas prices. I never set foot in a gas station unless I want to go into a convenience store and get something to drink or a little snack item. I, by the way, sometimes I'll go into the, the, ga- the stores and, you know, there's always usually limited number of parking spaces that are available. Sometimes I park and I, you'll hate me for this. I park where the people are getting their fuel, but I can't fuel it because it's an electric car, but that's the only place to park, but I'll just go in there, get a drink and boom, boom, I'm out the door. I never step foot in a gas station really. I mean, for gas anymore. Um, but it's huge. And if you're driving a gas car and you're already paying a ton of money for the place you live in, your mortgage payment, your rent payment, price of fuel is huge. You know, your car, they talk about housing is always your number one expense, but your car is typically always number two. Second biggest expense you have on your personal budget. And a lot of this is because of government policy that adds a dollar, roughly a dollar 20 a gallon in taxes. It's insane. Um, Pete Neal said, just saw on the news that the hoarders are filling plastic bags with gasoline to the point where public warnings to not to are being posted. Maybe those are the people that move from California. Okay, let's talk about this is a good angle, Pete. I want to talk about this. So, yeah, there are people that are hoarding the gas. Now, yes, I, I, you see idiots that have like a plastic bag and, you know, that they get from their groceries and they're filling that with gas. But I've seen like legitimately people with, you know, these large 20, 25 gallon tanks that they're taking to the gas station and they're filling up multiple tanks and, and, and putting them in the back of their SUV, which is pretty risky. And they're driving them back because, you know, they may have a generator, they may have other needs for this fuel. And when the, when there's a shortage like this, it encourages people to hoard it. And, you know, people try to, you know, prevent hoarding and they'll have, try to have limits on this. But it's just when there's a shortage, that's what people are going to do. It's, it's kind of like here when we had the shortage for toilet paper. People bought up all the toilet paper. 
Um, when there is a when there is a shortage, it, enc- it, it encourages hoarding. But the real problem that exists is they the government will come in and they will cap the prices. So if if like if there was a shortage on gasoline. The right thing to do is just supply and demand curve, right? As the demand goes up and the supply goes down, the price of gasoline should go up, maybe a lot. But if they did that, if gas suddenly wasn't $4 a gallon, suddenly and now it's $9 a gallon, well, then those yahoos wouldn't be hoarding it. And there'd be more gasoline available for other people. But right now, a lot of gas stations are just flat out shut down. So it doesn't matter what you want to pay for it. There's just none available. Now, granted, this is all temporary, but a lot of this is explains why we have shortages like this. If they just would allow the price to fluctuate, but they won't do it because this, they call them price gouging laws. And the price gouging laws, they, they set those up you know, to kind of frame the seller of the product as some sort of evil person. When in my opinion, the price should naturally flow. In a free economy, the, the price is fluid. But when the government comes in and says you cannot raise your prices more than X percent, then it's just going to encourage those those crazy people. Maybe they moved out of California to to hoard that gasoline. Um, Yuri Bolin says gas will be over five dollars a gallon by the fourth of July. You know things are getting bad when Jimmy Carter is moving up in the standings. <laughs> you know. Just as a tangent. Well, first of all, Yuri, I agree with you. Gas is going to keep getting more expensive because we're going into the summer months, more travel, summer blend. We have limited supply. And then all that pent up demand from people being, you know, stuck in their homes for over a year, people desperate to go on vacations. And now things are starting to loosen up and people are, yeah, people are going to be going all over the place. It's, it's creating this distortion in prices for hotel rooms and for rental cars. I mean, it's, there's all these distortions in the economy because of what government is doing while out of the other side of their mouth saying, we do this to help the little guy. But what ends up happening is it hurts the little guy and it makes the rich richer. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. And by the way, Jimmy Carter, um, I think he gets just way too bad of a rap. Um, I think Carter was actually a very good president in, in terms of his policies. He brokered a peace deal between Israel and Egypt. And I don't recall much hostility between those two nations. I mean, certainly nothing like what's still happening between Israel and Palestine. We've been hearing the news about that this week. Um, Jimmy Carter, the great deregulator, deregulated um, uh, trucking, deregulated airlines, deregulated beer. We all are are better off because Jimmy Carter deregulated beer. Did you know that um, back in the 70s, beer, there was maybe only like about 50 um, breweries in the whole um, nation. Now there are over 5,000 because it used to be illegal to brew your own beer in your home or to start up a business. It was huge regulation hurdles to be able to open up a brewery. Now, by the way, who does that benefit? That benefits Budweiser and Coors and Miller, um, you know, Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser. It benefits them. It blocks out competition. But they ended up deregulating the beer market. And now we have a plethora of beer choices, including San Diego, arguably, maybe the beer capital of America. We were just at the, um, uh, the Stone Brewery Garden on Mother's Day. Fabulous. What a great place that is. And wonderful beer from Stone. 
and so many other great breweries here in San Diego County, Ballast and Lightning Brewery here in Poway and Carl Strauss. I mean, we can go down the list. There's so many. So I know I think Carter and Carter even had solar panels on the White House. Reagan tore him down. I mean, Carter was a visionary. Carter got it. Now, Carter, you know, he was legitimately a good guy. And, you know, there we could point to, you know, there were problems in the Carter presidency. By no means am, am I saying he's the greatest president of all time. I just think he gets too hard, bad of a rap. I think he's much better than people give him credit for. Um, Bruce Uke on the live stream. Bruce, nice to hear from you. Um, automatic backups can be dangerous. Oh, interesting. If you don't realize some of your files have been encrypted, which can happen if the script terminates, then your good files are replaced by the encrypted files Carbonite is great if you ID an issue right away, but super slow for restores. You need to have them prepare and overnight a drive back to you. Restoring across the internet is not viable for businesses. Hashtag Ben there. Um, super. Uh, good advice, Bruce, for me. Thank you. Um, you know, thankfully, I haven't had a problem when I've had, I haven't had ransomware. I haven't had a... Well, I will say the one time I had a hard drive crash was before I had Carbonite. And it was on a on a NAS unit, network, network attached storage. Um, I had a problem. But I'm a small business owner. Um, maybe, you know, maybe to your point, and maybe it's not viable for, you know, larger businesses. But I tell you what, for me, I have great peace of mind that my drive is continuously being backed up. So I think it's good stuff. But Bruce, thanks for your advice on that. Okay. Um, moving along. Um, oh, Mike Ryan on the live stream side of the okay, private conversation going on in the chat. Um, so anyways, uh, well, we, I want to talk a little bit more. There's a couple other areas we're seeing distortions in automotive. And to your point, Mike, there, there's a lot less automobiles that are for sale, you know, brand new automobiles. And there was just a big story about this because there's a shortage of microchips. You know, and so many of our cars are driven by this high technology. I mean, frankly, my Hyundai Kona, my wife's Tesla uh, Model 3, loaded with all kinds of wonderful electronic gadgets and sensors and backup cameras and, you know, infotainment. A lot of those chips are hard to get. And the reason is, is because when the pandemic hit and government shut down parts of the economy, right, the um, the those limited number of suppliers of those chips shifted and began, you know, developing more products for, you know, more microchips for consumer electronics. So people could have webcams, <laughs> just like what I'm doing here on my podcast. They were, they had webcams that they could use to host meetings because people were working remotely and people were investing in doing a lot of home improvement. But as a result, there was because there was a temporary swoon, right, for demand for cars when the pandemic hit because of all the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt. Now, the automakers want to build more cars, but they can't because they can't get enough microchips. So now now they're beginning to investigate. Can they find other suppliers? Can they help create other suppliers? Could they maybe even create some of this themselves? So um, it's interesting. But again, more distortions because of ultimately because of government policy that was driven because of the pandemic. Um, labor, another one. Um, Mike Ryan goes on to say, um, that's correct, John. Been talking with dealers and they've been saying the same thing. It's the chips. Um, San Diego, uh, Pete goes on to say, San Diego has over 150 breweries, the highest number of any county in the United States. Yeah. 
you know, kudos to you, Jimmy Carter, for opening up the brewery market. Um, and you don't normally associate Democrats with deregulation. But Carter, the great deregulator, I, I, I think he gets way too bad of a rap. Um, he, I mean, look at in terms of, you know, we talk about which president has created the most debt. Carter, barely any. I mean, he had deficits, but I mean, infinitesimal compared to the debt created by Biden or Trump or Obama or Bush or even Clinton and Reagan. And the and and Bush Senior, um, he was far more fiscally responsible, or less fiscally irresponsible, than the others. And again, I think he gets a bad rap. Um, okay, let's, let's briefly talk about labor shortages in labor because of the pandemic, causing inflation in the price of labor. Now, for some people, this is great, right? Where people are thinking this is finally, you know, it's, again, this is all part of the pushing to raise the minimum wage. Well, in this case, the market is doing it. Sort of, but the market's doing it because the government essentially distorted it. They squeezed one end of the balloon, which inflated the balloon on the other side. So now people, you know, certain amount, number of people are, they're enjoying those unemployment benefits and they've been very generous, not just the standard unemployment, but there has been, and not just the stimulus, but there have been, I think it's, what is it? $300 a week that have been coming to a lot of these people. And, you know, for some people that puts them in a, in a situation where they're making more money staying home than they were working or they're making something close, maybe even a little less and they don't have to work at all. Now there's arguments about really how many of these people are there. I mean, cause we, I, I would hope that we would all agree that when people are working, especially if they're doing something they love doing when they're productive, that's a good thing for them. That's a good way that they can demonstrate their value, build their self-esteem build their skills, grow their career, take pride in themselves. And not only that, but also take pride in themselves of earning their own way and paying for their expenses, providing for their family based on the work that they did. Work, frankly, a a, a great value, productivity, a huge virtue, essentially. But, you know, a lot of people like to point the finger, oh, there's people sitting on their couch collecting unemployment and they're not working. Well, I know there's some people that are doing that. That's definitely that's definitely a, a part of it. But there's also a certain percentage of people that basically said, what am I doing in my life? Right. They kind of reassess their life. This this shutdown has been sort of a pattern interrupt that forced them to kind of get smacked upside the head and say, what am I doing in my life? Do I really need to? You know, I've been working as a, a server or, you know, in a, in a restaurant for the last 12 years. Do I need to keep doing that? And there's other people that are now beginning to shift their careers and finding, you know, jobs in, um, in technology. Some are in logistics. You hear a lot of people going and doing warehouse work, probably for Amazon or similar companies. But then they get to work nine to five rather than six to 2 a.m. They experience life in different ways. So there's a lot of people that are there's labor shortage for a lot of reasons, but a lot of it caused by the government. And some, and some have been a good positive end result where people are reassessing their life and taking control. I think that's great. Um, but these restaurants are desperate. I mean, they're, they're, they, can't, they can't find people. I saw one um, news story where a restaurant had just hired four people and then they didn't show up to work after they were hired. Um, they're desperate. And this one restaurant, I would love to see this. They said that they're now getting robots, which, you know, automation technology to create salads 
and even some robots to deliver food to the tables. I mean, I would love to see that. I think it's interesting. Now, Chipotle has reacted to this. And they're saying that they're raising the pay of their average worker, their average pay from $13 an hour to $15 an hour. Now, they're not raising their minimum wage to $15 an hour, which, by the way, Amazon did that. Um, And yet Jeff Bezos gets raked over the coals, yet he pays a minimum wage of $15 an hour, which is what our progressive friends on the left have been demanding the whole time. Um. Chipotle is raising their wages to average $15 an hour. So there'll still be people making less, but everyone's going to be making a little more. And they're selling it. They're kind of taking the PR angle to this. Um, They're saying, yeah, we got to bump our prices up a bit, but it's not that much. And we just want to help our people. It sounds good, right? But you know what they're trying to do is they're trying to recruit more employees. And this is a way to kind of get out in front of it and have some positive PR and get the news media to advertise for them, demonstrate that they're a great place to work and and try to recruit more employees. It's interesting is they'll always, a lot of corporations will always kind of front it by these altruistic, um, for these altruistic reasons. Like it's not about us. It's not like we want more profit. You know, we, we want to sacrifice our profit for the little guy. But in the end, you know that they're trying to play this game to maximize profit for themselves. I don't blame them for it, but that's really what's happening. That's why they're raising their price. And that's why they're using this PR opportunity as an opportunity to recruit more employees so they can be more productive and ultimately produce more profit. Um, so it's, it's funny how altruism is used as a front, but often people are, are, for the reasons I think that are entirely rational, ultimately pursuing their own self-interest. In this economy today, if you're a business owner, you should raise your prices if you want to recruit good employees and retain good employees. You should. But, and you should do that because it's selfish. It's in your own best interest. Um, But it's interesting how some of these companies angle this. And the other part of this I just want to mention is Another reason, I mean, we talked about there's a lot less immigrants coming to California, right? Because of, you know, our population went down, both legal and illegal immigrants, in some cases, legal immigrants that Trump pulled their visa and they had to go home, student visas and working visas. Well, when you restrict immigration, that's going to have an impact on the labor market as well. And, you know, frankly, a lot of immigrants work in restaurants. So that's something to me. I think that plays a role as well. And again, government getting in the way, you know, I remember hearing someone say that if you had a truly free market, there would be more jobs than there are people and that you would always need immigrants to come in and fill in all the gaps because in a free market, you wouldn't have enough people to fill those jobs. But once you begin restricting the marketplace, then that drives immigrants away. And, and that's what they did during the pandemic, right? Something. Okay. A couple more comments here. And Mike Ryan says, we can't find people in the grocery store either. On any given day, our hiring manager can call 25 applicants and maybe get one who will come in for an interview. We need the help and have negotiated salary to get people hired. Bruce Uke says, go ahead and raise wages and prices. If it's no longer a value, then sales go down and you readjust your prices. Yeah, 
That that makes sense. Now, yeah, that makes sense, Bruce. I mean, I think if you you need to have good employees, but and in some cases you need to pay more to get good employees, right? But I'll tell you what, it doesn't make it any easier to recruit good employees when there is a certain segment of the unemployed population that's perfectly content staying home and watching Ellen DeGeneres while they collect unemployment when these businesses are desperate for people. So the government policy kind of gets in the way, right? That kind of distorts the system. Now, these companies, you know, they're going to have to, if they, if they increase wages, they got to make that up somewhere. And most likely they're going to increase prices. Um, and yeah, at some point, People like us may or may not buy from them. I mean, Chipotle already is a lot more expensive than a lot of other Mexican fast food restaurants, but it's a lot better. The quality of the ingredients is a lot better and they're bigger and their burritos are unbelievable. But yeah, they're going to become even more expensive. And so as a result, we get more inflation, right? The price of labor goes up, then the price of goods goes up and we're in this kind of spiral with inflation. Um, And speaking of food, um, I just saw that there's going to be a shortage of, of sauce packets at Chick-fil-A <laughs> and a, a shortage of little ketchup packets, you know, because of the supply chain disruption, which, again, was caused when government shut down parts of the economy. Um, and then, um, you know, and that we, we even did a podcast about this in the very beginning of COVID when it was called Capitalism and Burritos. And it was El Armando's Taco Shop in Poway Road, which is the one right next door to where they're building the Poway Commons. When, when COVID hit, they had trouble getting beef because a lot of the, um, uh, what, what are the, 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 the beef processing plants, you know, the, the slaughterhouses, essentially, a lot of them were getting shut down because of COVID. And and because they couldn't get workers and the workers were afraid to show up for work. And then um, there was a lot less supply of, of the carne asada beef, which in turn caused the cost of carne asada burritos to go up. I think it went up like one or two dollars as a result of this. So, again, all these distortions that have happened in the market as a result of this. Um, Mike Ryan says, I paid nine dollars for a burrito at one of the taco shops on Poway Road in 1995. They were two dollars and 50 cents. Yeah. I remember around 1995-ish, I remember I was working for a company up in Vista, and one of my coworkers and I, we'd go out to lunch, and I always played a game, and I said, I want to be able to buy lunch for less than five bucks. I wanted my my food, my drink, and if necessary, a tip, and see if I can do it for all, all under five bucks. And back then, you could do it. You could get a $2.50 burrito, you get a, a something to drink, and you'd have money left over that you could use to tip or to put in your pocket, either way. Um, but yeah, like nine bucks for a burrito? Yeah, I believe that. In fact, we've I've paid that. Um, it's amazing how much the food has gone up at a lot of these places. And, and then, by the way, we haven't even gotten into college costs and healthcare costs and all of that. We've been seeing inflation, not just recently, because we're coming out of the pandemic, but we're seeing it um, been going on for, frankly, for decades. I mean, it's, it's insane. So, so to summarize all of this, um, government policy, in my opinion, is restricting supply. We see it in housing. We see it in, uh, what are the other categories we talked about? Housing, uh, gasoline, we're seeing that. Um, restriction of supply with lumber, we're seeing restriction of supply there. Again, 
or, or not necessarily restrictions, certainly disincentivizing, um, you know, production or disincentivizing imports because of tariffs. Um, we're seeing government policy that's restricting supply of things like gasoline because they got to switch to the summer blend that forces the, the plant, the, the refinery to shut down. And as a result, prices go up because there's less supply available. Um, so all kinds of crazy things that are going on in the market. And then a lot of these labor shortages and the inflation in labor, largely because of government policy. Right. Um, then government policies at the same time are fueling demand. OK, so, you know, they, they, they keep dropping helicopter money um, to people, to businesses. And frankly, a lot of it goes to, you know, it's funny is they, they talk about all these bailouts for businesses, but they also talk about the fourteen hundred dollar stimulus checks. And we need to help out the little guy. What does the little guy do with that money, by the way? They spend it immediately. And that goes and they spend it with large corporations that fattens their profit and and ultimately enriches the shareholders. So when they drop all this helicopter money, it has a temporary positive effect on the little guy, but it ends up making the rich richer. And all these policies, they do that. So and they're fueling demand for housing because they're by restricting the supply. There's just not there's too much demand and not enough supply. And then, you know, I can go down the list. So the end result is the rich get richer. And the poor get poorer, all because of these distortions in the market. Um, Yuri Bolin says some places would charge a surcharge for beef burritos. Yeah, that's exactly what El Armando's did with the um, the carne asada. In fact, I think it was it, it had its regular price on the menu, and then there was a paper written sign that said carne asada burritos are now two dollars more temporary because of COVID. Yeah. Um, Pete Neal says, no venture down the Cheney vote path today. Um, and then Bruce, you, I say no to surcharges triggered. Yeah, there's, what was it? One of our other uh, frequent listeners of the podcast, Bruce McCoy, had texted me and said, oh, you should do a talk about the surcharges at restaurants. And that's been a big deal. And that, that happened when they increased the minimum wage. Because... These businesses were furious and they want, they knew they had to pass it on to customers, but they didn't want to necessarily raise the menu prices. So they just included another line item of, I don't know, what was it? 3% or 5% on top of the, the, the subtotal of all the menu items. Um, yes, yeah, surcharges are something, but in some ways surcharges, I, I kind of like, cause they're at least explaining why the price goes up. And if it's temporary, like in the case of the carne asada burritos, then hopefully they, they just remove the surcharge and it goes back to normal. But we know that never really happens, right? Once the price goes up, it, it generally stays there. Um, 4%. So 4 is that what it is, Bruce? 4% for the surcharges at a lot of these restaurants. It's unbelievable. Now, Pete, as far as the, the Cheney vote today, I'll, I'll make a couple of comments. Um. First of all, it's unbelievable that I'm defending a Cheney. I would never do that in a million years. Um, was not a friend, a, 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 a supporter of her husband or her father's policies, excuse me, of her father's policies as vice president. Um, and frankly, if, if I go down the, the list of all the things that Liz Cheney has voted for, I'm generally very not unsupportive of the things that she uh, represents. But I will give her credit that she at least is accepting reality. She's accepting the reality that Biden won the election. 
She's accepting the reality that what Trump has been doing has been not only disruptive to society, but frankly, disruptive to the, to the GOP. And it's crazy that the Republican Party is ousting her. Um, but in some ways, I... I'm kind of sitting back with eating my popcorn watching this because I, I was no fan of Trump at all. But I did say the one good thing that could come from Trump is the complete you know, implosion of the Republican Party. Again, I don't support the Democrats either. I'm, I'm much more of a life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, free market capitalism was what I support. Republicans are for a highly regulated highly tariffed. They're anti-free trade, especially Republicans now in the era of Trump. Those are that's what republicanism represents. Republicanism and Trumpism are the same thing. A lot of people say all these, you know, Trump sycophants, they're they're not Republicans. You know, the Cheney is the real Republican or Romney is the real Republican. Well, no. I mean, that's a Republican of long ago. The real Republicans are the ones that are in control of the party, and they're the ones that are ousting ousting her. So um Bruce Uke says, thanks, JRP and listeners got to run. Bruce, thanks for joining us on this podcast. Uh, Bruce and I are, are good friends, went to school together at UCSD, and we're in the same fraternity. So it's nice seeing you, Bruce. Um, so anyways, uh, it, to me, Pete, to answer your question, um, I, I, I think it's, it's, um, it's like watching a car crash. You know, to put an analogy that you would understand, um, you were fortunate enough to avoid any car crashes on Pahrump, uh at the Spring Mountain Motor Speedway. But to me, it's like watching, you know, a train wreck when I watch what's going on in the Republican Party. Um, I hope that that um, the Republican Party really seriously readdresses their brand, their platform and really makes some big decisions on who they want to be. In my opinion, if they really double down on Trumpism, they're going to continue to lose elections. Um, and they, while they may win some elections in some parts of the country, uh, they will continue to be the minority. And until they realize that, I don't think, um, I, I don't think, I think, I don't think they're going to have much hope until they actually accept what the reality is and then make some adjustments. So we'll see. Okay, so to wrap this bad boy up, got some quotes. And by the way, I always welcome your thoughts and comments. You can join me on um, social media. Go to my uh, one of my vanity URLs that I created is connectwithjohnny.com. You can go there and all my social media links are there. You can get links to, um, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And and um, we have the John Riley Project Insiders Group on Facebook. That's a great place for people to engage and interact. Um, at the same time, I've got links to all the podcast platforms we're on, all the audio platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. They're all up there. And our YouTube channel. And I know a lot of you are watching on YouTube now. And if you're watching on YouTube, if you could, click, click on the thumbs up if you think this is a good episode. Same thing on, on Facebook. That helps in the algorithm. It, the more people that are supportive of the content we create, the more often we show up in people's feeds and people's searches. That's helpful. And if you like, subscribe. That'd be really helpful to subscribe to the podcast on YouTube and um, on any of the audio-only podcast platforms. Okay. Uh, Pete Neal says, I agree, and I am waiting to see the vote count. I would like to know the percentages. Yeah, I'm not sure where the vote count will be. It's it's like they're just it's like a circular firing squad, right? The Republicans should be fighting a pro battle of a proactive message, but instead they're looking inward and beating themselves up. Um, it's a shame. 
It really is. But, you know, I'm no fan of either of these parties. So when there's chaos in some of these parties, I like that um, because I would love to see these parties blow up. And so we get more independent candidates, more third party candidates. You know, they talk about how the election was rigged, how the, the, you know, the votes were stolen and everything else. The voting process is rigged. I did a whole podcast about the elections are rigged. The classic example is, is that uh, getting access to ballots in a lot of these partisan races, if you're the Republican or Democrat nominee, it's easy. You're automatically qualified on the ballot. But if you run as an independent or a third party, especially in certain states, you have to get massive numbers of signatures, way, way, way more than a Republican or Democrat would get. They, and they do that on purpose to keep third parties and independents out of the system. They want to block competition. And then, you know, the debates, when's the last time you've seen three presidential debates on the stage in October of an election year? And you have to go back to 1992 with Ross Perot. I mean, the system is completely distorted and rigged. Um, but the vote count, I have no reason to believe that the vote count wasn't accurate. Until someone shows evidence otherwise, I'll believe the results. But I will tell you that the the system is definitely rigged for the Republicans and Democrats and against third parties and independents. I mean, that's even true running here on local races. I ran as an independent for school board here in Poway, and I was at a disadvantage. My competitors were getting a lot more financial support and a lot more party support from the two incumbent parties. So anyways, a little bit of a tangent. Um Kevin McNamara on the live stream, no vote count, just a voice vote. Uh, so that's what it was uh, for the Liz Cheney. Um, yeah, I mean, you could probably get an order of magnitude of what percentage or yay or nay. Uh, but then, you know, they tend to scream louder when they want to make their point. Uh, Pete Neal says, I thought it was a secret ballot. Was it not? Well, apparently not. Okay, just I want to close this out with some final quotes here. First one is from Oprah Winfrey. Good old Oprah. Oprah, I consider a hero, by the way. Um, Oprah started from, you know, very modest means and built her own media empire, has been tremendously influential, a force for positive change. I think Oprah is someone that should be celebrated. And oh, by the way, she's a billionaire. (laughs) I don't think billionaires are, are evil by default. I know that's very fashionable these days, but I think Oprah Winfrey is a hero. And her quote is, and this goes back to the beginning of the podcast, we talked about change. The greatest discovery of all time is that a person can change his future by merely changing his attitude. And what a great way to consider that. Like if, and I talked about my client is a corporate client that's going through a big merger and there's a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt. People are concerned about what their future holds and, you know, in a corporate merger, you know, how how um, viable their career is with that company. You can worry, you can speculate, you can go into a, a sense of anxiety with what ifs. But if you change your point of view into her perspective, Oprah says, if you can just change your attitude, then um, it makes it very easy to change your future. I think that's a wonderful quote. The greatest discovery of all time is that a person can change his future by merely changing his attitude. And then from Barack Obama, Change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. That's wonderful. That speaks to individualism. We are the ones we've been waiting for. You can do it. Be all that you can be. Live your life to the fullest. This is a great message. Uh, 
So rather than waiting on someone else to change your life, take control of your life and make the change yourself. And you're better than you think you are. You can do it. I think that's a great quote. Then two quotes here um, on inflation and from two guys that are sort of on, you would think are, uh, you know, like the Yankees and the Red Sox or the Padres and the Dodgers, you know, you would think these two are enemies, but they both have the same opinion on inflation. Milton Friedman, you know, Dr. Milton Friedman, Nobel Prize winner. Inflation is taxation without legislation. So, yeah, in many ways, the inflation that we're experiencing is a result of government policy. And in many ways, this inflation is helping to, A, enrich the government with more taxes, and B, it ends up lessening the impact of the national debt. A lot of people say that inflation will be the answer to getting us uh, out from under this um, albatross of a national debt, because as inflation goes up, that debt really becomes lesser and lesser of of um, in value. So, yeah. Um, inflation is taxation without legislation. The inflation ultimately hurts the little guy and it benefits, in this case, the government, but it also benefits the rich. And then John Maynard Keynes, um, you know, who another famous economist, but he's more of, you know, Milton Friedman's more of a supply side um, where Keynes is more demand side, right? He's more supportive of helicopter money being dropped in the economy. But he goes on to say, by continuing a process of inflation, government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of the citizens. So again, he sees inflation as the result of a government policy that ultimately harms the people. And that is what we are going through right now. Inflation in housing, inflation in gasoline, inflation in um, automobile prices, we, inflation in food, inflation in labor, inflation in college education, inflation in healthcare. It goes on and on and on. But a lot of it is the result of government policy that restricts su- supply and increases demand and ultimately drives prices up. So that is our conclusion. We went for, whoa, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, Mike Ryan says, uh, have a great night, John. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate your support. Uh, Pete Neal, another good one. John Riley. Well, Pete, thank you. And it's nice to do a, a podcast uh, here and share my thoughts and opinions and get your thoughts and opinions on the live stream. Pete, I will tell you this is that, you know, here we're using this microphone here. Um, I've got um, a third one on order because we're going to have some podcasts, three ways that we're going to do. Now we have COVID is kind of behind us. We're vaccinated. We'll be able to have guests in the podcast studio. I already have two of these boom microphones. I have a third one and components of it have already arrived and other components I should hopefully see in the next few days. So we'll be in a good position to do some more of these in-person podcasts and have uh, three people around the big table. I think that'll be a lot of fun. Okay, friends, um, this is episode number 232 of the John Riley Project. We'll be back at you on Friday at two o'clock, same bat time, same bat channel. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye.